Welcome to the 363rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Adam Searle and Jonathan Turnbull to COVID Calls to talk about their work on more than human perspectives on the pandemic. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 22nd, 2021, there are 4,929,170 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Cornelia Hahn Oberlander, which appeared in the New York Times. Cornelia Hahn Oberlander, a German-born Canadian landscape architect who blended naturalistic designs with modernist ideals and recognized early on the urgency of climate change, designing public spaces to mitigate its effects, died on May 22nd in Vancouver, British Columbia. She was 99. The cause was complications of COVID-19, said her daughter, Judy Oberlander. Oberlander was one of the first women to study at Harvard's Graduate School of Design, where she was taught by Walter Gropius, a leader of the Bauhaus movement. Its modernist ethos and her own upbringing gave her a mission to improve people's lives with public spaces nourished by nature. With the Canadian modernist architect Arthur Erickson, she created some of the most enduring and beloved public spaces in Vancouver, her adopted city. One is Robson Square, a three-block downtown plaza built between 1978 and 1983. An oasis of green roofs, waterfalls, and hanging gardens, it descends from the city's courthouses and government offices, a low-slung concrete complex designed by Mr. Erickson, by way of an ingenious series of gently graded granite stair ramps that Miss Oberlander called stramps. She was inspired by goat paths. They make each level navigable to anyone, even if you're in a wheelchair or pushing a pram. Long before the phrase climate change had entered the popular lexicon, Miss Oberlander was designing green roofs, green roofs to cool cities and provide stormwater management. She worked globally with some of the 20th century's most celebrated architects including Louis Kahn, Moshe Safdie, and Renzo Piano. She worked in particular with Mr. Piano on the new headquarters for the New York Times, a 52-story tower on Manhattan's west side. His design called for an interior atrium in the shape of a perfect cube with a grid of birch trees, and it was Miss Oberlander's seemingly impossible task to make it happen. Cornelia brought science to the conversation, said Hank White, the landscape architect with whom she collaborated on the project. She called in a scientist who had created a software program to model microclimatology. 
and asked him to measure the wind, sun, and shade patterns of this yet-to-be-created space. In the end, on an undulating floor of hillocks and dales, the trees were placed not on a grid, but exactly where the light would fall. Cornelia Ann Hahn was born on June 20, 1921, in Mulheim an der Ruhr, Germany, the oldest of three daughters in a wealthy and socially conscious family. Her father, Franz Hahn, was an engineer in the family's steel business, founded by a great-grandfather of Cornelia's and later a management consultant. Her mother, Beate Jastro Hahn, was a horticulturalist and children's book author. Cornelia grew up in Dusseldorf and Berlin. The Nazis rising to power in the 1930s, Cornelia, like so many other Jewish children, was forbidden to attend her school. The family's passports were taken away, as was the steel business that was the source of their wealth. Their butler began to hide his own money under a rug for the family so that it might help them should they escape. They were finally able to flee in late 1938, two weeks after Kristallnacht, the Nazi pogrom against Jews, with the help of Jeffrey Lawrence, a British judge and family friend who would go on to oversee the Nuremberg trials. At Harvard's School of Design, she met Peter Oberlander, who was studying urban planning. Viennese-born and also Jewish, Mr. Oberlander had ended up in Canada in 1940 after having been in a series of internment camps. Cornelia caught his eye at a student picnic, and so did the dessert she had brought, an Austrian Bunt-style cake called a Gugelhupf. It was a place-in-time cake that sealed the deal, said their daughter, Wendy Oberlander, the kind of Madeleine that created an instant bond between the two young European refugees. The couple married in New York City in 1953 and moved to Vancouver, where Mr. Oberlander became a professor of city planning at the University of British Columbia. He died in 2008. Zoberlander was serious about children and their play, and worried particularly about urban children and their access to nature. Beginning with her early work in public housing in Philadelphia, she made sure to include places for children in her landscapes. The Philadelphia site prefigured Miss Oberlander's design for her most famous work, a playground for Expo 67, the Montreal World's Fair. It's been described as a stage for children to express themselves on rather than an arrangement of equipment that told them what to do. In 2008, when Mr. Birnbaum of the Cultural Landscape Foundation flew out to Vancouver to interview Ms. Oberlander for his oral history project, she gave him and his crew a tour of her property, a modernist house that cantilevers over a ravine. She and her husband had designed it with a friend and a semi-wild landscape with fruit trees and flowers. As was her habit, Ms. Oberlander at five foot two was marching along swiftly and the film crew was struggling to keep up. When Mr. Birnbaum asked her to slow down, she told him, when I was young, I was always the fastest. My mother said I had to slow down and let the Aryan children win. I swore I would never slow down again. The obituary of Cornelia Hahn Oberlander, which appeared in the New York Times. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guests to you. Jonathan Turnbull is a cultural and environmental geographer from the University of Cambridge. His PhD research funded by the UK's Economic and Social Research Council concerns the return of nature to the Chernobyl exclusion zone in Ukraine, where he's been working for the last two years with scientists studying different aspects of the zone's ecology, especially dogs and wolves. 
Adam Searle is a cultural and environmental geographer from the University of Liege in Belgium. His PhD research at Cambridge examined de-extinction or bringing back extinct animals to life, building upon ethnographic work in the Spanish and French Pyrenees and his postdoctoral research funded by the European Research Council, which concerns the use of biotechnologies in agriculture. Jonathan Turnbull and Adam Searle, thank you so much for joining me on COVID calls today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so, for having us. And thank you very much for that for that obituary. It was very moving. Um, she was really something. I And I have to say, I, I was aware of her work, but I wasn't aware it was her, which maybe says something also about the problem of recognizing landscape architects and particularly female landscape architects. But um, yeah, I was really taken by that, by that story too. Um, so I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where uh, people are calling from and what the pandemic's looking like there. And Adam, let me, let me start with you on that. Yeah, so I'm calling from Barcelona now, where I've been based for the last three and a half years. I came here for my PhD research and then um, was kind of left here by the pandemic. But it was a very, um, I, I don't know, it was a, it was a, it was a very solidarity. There was a lot of solidarity here during during the pandemic, um, and we really built a sense of community in the neighborhood. And I was quite grateful to have my my, my neighborhood here uh, during the pandemic. So. Spain got hit very hard early. What was it like in Barcelona and the worst of it? Um, during the worst of it, we weren't allowed outside um, at all, apart from to go to the shop once every few days. And every time you went to the shop, there was kind of police checks in every street corner, particularly where I live in the old in the old town. Hmm. Um, it was, you know, children weren't allowed outside for for really for, for months, there was, it was two, two months or so, we weren't allowed out to exercise or anything. And um, I don't know, I, I really missed the kind of daily, you know, walk um, that, I don't know, I, other people in, in other countries kind of built into their rhythm, this this kind of light exercise, um, but we, we had to kind of make do with a square meter balcony. Um, mm. Yeah, it was it was quite it was you know the it, it had to be done the lockdown of that of that kind of severity because the cases were so high and it was so um, terrifying. I guess it was very new um, and it was one of the I think after Italy the the second hit place in Europe um, and it was all you know very very scary. So that, that's what that's what had to be done. Um, but yeah, it was it was the, particularly until around June uh, of 2020, it was very, very scary. And then, you know, things got a little bit better. Things opened up a little bit and then it got worse again. Things closed down again, like everywhere else in Europe. Mm. Um, but at the moment, it's looking kind of a lot better. I mean, we're still getting about 150 cases a day in Barcelona, but the curve is kind of on, on that flat, flattening side of it now um so yeah still we're still not out of it yet um and there's still people going through heartbreak every day um but there's there's a kind of there's more of an optimism around uh the way things are going do you have a specific memory adam of of any point in the pandemic that really sticks with you and i know i call this the impossible question because there's so many things sort of crammed together there but is there something you can pull out that really really adheres to COVID for you in your memory? Yeah. Um, can I choose two? Is that all right? 
of course. Um, the, 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 the first one was really around the, the uh, kind of what I was just talking about, which was the first time I heard children playing was when there was uh, in Barcelona, I think in all the Catalonia, they, um, they, children weren't allowed outside at all. So they weren't allowed, they weren't on the list of people that could go to the, to the shops to get the essential uh, food or anything. So there was really a long time. People don't have gardens here in the city. So people uh, live in flats. Um, and I don't know, it was really kind of a bizarre absence of, of the sound of children playing. Um, and I live on a kind of pedestrianized street in the old, in the old city. Um, and to the, the, there was a period of, I think, two weeks where the government said, okay, children should be allowed to play. So there was one hour a day where only children were allowed outside. So I think under 16s were allowed to play outside. And it, there was just this, I don't know, it was a joyous sound of just hearing people playing, you know, kicking a ball about on the street and things like that. And that for me was like the first sign of hope. Uh, I remember kind of feeling very emotional um, at, at that sound. Um, the second one for me was something which really just kind of got got me through it um, uh, in terms of just uh, finding something to tune into and finding something to focus on every day, uh, particularly as we weren't allowed outside at all. And I'm someone who really um, likes to spend a lot of time looking at wildlife, likes to spend a lot of time in kind of uh, protected areas, or I don't know, protected areas, not the right thing, but around, amongst kind of wild areas and going to particularly observing birds. Um, and you know cycling and things like that and getting out in the in the hills and for me for me it was really kind of it really sucked a lot of uh, energy out of me not being able to see the comings and goings of of animals uh, or of birds and not i mean i could hear the bird song from my balcony but i couldn't see anything and there was um really i i, I uh, saw this news article on on uh, BBC Radio Sheffield talking about uh, the fact that internet traffic to these peregrine peregrine falcon webcams had gone up by 800%. And <clears throat> I, I checked out the webcam and ended up just kind of really fixated on this, on watching the kind of intimate lives of these peregrine falcons in the middle of a city, which I know really well and grew up going, all my family's from South Yorkshire. And I, uh, I don't know, I, I suddenly just got so much hope watching uh the, the the birth of the peregrine chicks the fledging you know the, the the everything just the life cycle of these kind of magnificent animals that have managed to uh adapt to cities in the uk that yeah so that for me was really something it was like every day i'd wake up and i'd watch the sunrise in sheffield and the plumes of smoke coming up from the chimneys and a peregrine observed the sunrise and that was really something that was important to me i mean Thank you for both of those, and they're both so specific, and so, and I can imagine them both very clearly. Um, I didn't check on those birds; there were other birds I was watching. But um, just to clarify, you could have watched those peregrine falcons anytime, right? Before the pandemic, yeah. it's the pandemic when you found them, or they found you. However, you want to think about it. Yeah, very much so. I, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd always go and look for them in cities. Um, I'd very much like a very. I was living in Cambridge when there was peregrine falcons coming over um certain certain buildings in in the city and there was a, a lot of buzz around where the peregrines were going to uh nest uh and a lot of excitement about whether it would be in this iconic building or this iconic yeah, yeah. building and it was all very exciting but uh and i'd go out and try and make an effort to see the peregrines 
but I'd never thought that I could have a meaningful uh, engagement or you know get get something from watching a webcam before, and and I really did. Jonathan, let me bring you in on this. Same questions. Um, you know, where are you calling from now? How's the pandemic looking? And and also, if you wouldn't mind sharing a memory or two, uh, as much as you want, um, that really sticks for you in the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So I'm in I'm in the Hague now in the Netherlands, um, and I've I've come here from Kiev, Ukraine, where I was based for the entirety of the pandemic. Um, so I don't I don't know I don't know too much about the the state of the pandemic here, but I can tell you my reflections on kind of how it feels different to where I was before. Because Ukraine didn't really have as tight of a lockdown as other places, um, certainly not the UK. We were in we were in kind of a controlled lockdown for only a, th a few months, I think. <clears throat> and uh, it felt like in public places, everyone was you know wearing masks and being very sensible. And it, and, it, and it was quite a quite a shock to come um, to the to the Netherlands via the UK, where people definitely seem to be more relaxed about it, less mask wearing, um, probably explained by the higher vaccination rates. But um, yeah, I thought I thought it was actually going to be more relaxed in Ukraine, but it, it was vice versa. So it's a bit of a shock yet to go into supermarkets and stuff where no one, including the staff, are wearing masks. So um, I guess that tells you something about how people are. You know, experiencing it now and, and treating the pandemic. But um, I guess a memory or a, or a reflection from the from the early pandemic when it started, I guess, which is when a lot of the strong memories formed <clears throat> for both of us. I think um, it was kind of that camaraderie of, of being locked down originally with my partner and our friend who uh, came to stay in our apartment, um, and it was just this this feeling of like um closeness and togetherness that i think a lot of people experienced um because of the slowing down and this kind of enclosure and i guess i was lucky enough to be you know with with two people i loved and other people around the world were locked down in you know more precarious situations but i think for th those those people who experienced this kind of camaraderie it was a quite like a homely warming event it was quite cozy in a weird way um despite what was going on outside and i think i think that's kind of you know, related to this trend that we're seeing in, in various places where, um, you know, people are kind of not really looking forward to to, to going back to normal in, in, in some ways. And we're seeing kind of, you know, in London, 60% of office workers just want to stay at home. So we're seeing these changes, which, which is what we've become kind of academically interested in. But then kind of relating to this work that we've been doing, there was, there was a couple of things that's, that stood out. and the first was really the first time I went to the shop um, during lockdown, and this and I live in the the centre of Kiev in a in a district called Padil, which which is uh, also the the old the old town, and it's uh, it was completely empty, and it was just it was bizarre, uh, and walking through these streets and completely um, kind of reinterpreting them as spaces that are empty of human life and seeing them anew for you know this space that can be um reused by other other species that that sort of really came to mind because i was already aware of some of the news articles going around about dolphins in venice and stuff like this and then the one of the second memories that is, is strong is actually adam and i were speaking a lot during the pandemic using skype 
um, both like work calls and, and personal calls and stuff like this. And we were in a call with our um, supervisor from Cambridge, Bill Adams, and we were, we were talking about, you know, um, these news stories around animals reclaiming cities or how, how it was being framed in the press. And one of the things, one thing that happened was, I can't remember exactly which direction it went, but I think a bird tweeted in Barcelona where Adam was and the sound of the bird like came came through on my computer into Kiev and, and also Bill heard it in Cambridge as well. And this this was this was just kind of this like amazing moment where like we kind of all experienced the bird at the same time. And this really got us thinking about like um sort of how people were tuning into nature digitally during the pandemic as well and, and, and whether there were any positives to this. Uh yeah, so I guess I guess that's my two reflections. Again, thank thank you for both of those. And um I just I would just share with you um maybe we have the makings of a of an article here. I, one of the earlier COVID calls I did, I guess it was in early June of 2020, I was interviewing, um, I did a whole series of calls with staff of the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, which is one of the oldest sort of natural history museums in the United States, and it's the oldest. Um, and this particular one, and we were talking about this topic, although we didn't call it anthropause, I don't think that term was in circulation yet, but we were talking about this sort of general concept. And one of the, there was an ornithologist on the call. And uh, of course, it was June. I was living in Princeton, New Jersey at that time. I had the window open. And uh, the ornithologist said, hey, Scott, hold on a second. You've got a, and he identified the bird. He said, you've got some kind of a woodpecker. He said, be quiet a second. And he was listening and he identified the bird in the tree. And it was, I hadn't, it was such an unexpected moment. And yet so perfect of that time. Because I also remember and this is the juxtaposition of the terror, but also the tranquility, this sort of enhanced tranquility of hearing just a lot more birds because there was a lot less traffic. And I don't think there were more birds. I just, just less traffic noise. And the fact that he could from, you know, 50 miles away, identify this bird for me in my tree in my yard was just stunning. Um, the way we should collect, maybe you guys are already collecting these stories. You probably are. So add mine to the, to the list and uh, count me in, among those interested in seeing where that goes. So we have a lot to talk about here. I want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Jonathan Turnbull and Adam Searle today um, about non-humans uh, and the interaction of humans and nature in the pandemic. And so we'll come to many of the different things you've written, but I want to start by just getting this concept anthropause out on the table. It's one that you've worked a lot with, and it's actually one that I've talked about with guests on COVID calls. Most recently, people will remember I talked to Korean artist Yi and Kang, who's created really fascinating work based on anthropos. So, um, Adam, let me start with you, and then Jonathan to you. Um, just a kind of a general sense: what does the concept mean, and why were you drawn to it? Thanks, Scott. So, the concept was uh, is a word that was introduced by Christian Rutz, who's a who's a conservation biologist, ecologist um, at St Andrews University, and a lot like uh, a big team of co-authors who were writing around. Uh, wildlife activity during the pandemic it was in, i think it was in june uh, 2020 that they they um published 
an article in Nature that Nature went with for the for the cover, and, and the, the, it was a they offered a kind of etymology of the word. Um, I guess really briefly, anthro from 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 humans, pause a stop. So they were using it to define a significant reduction in human activity and mobility during this time. So particularly looking at reduction in industry, which causes environmental stress and in travel from, you know, how, how that, how travel affects um, the mobilities of non-humans and their activity too. Um, so they, they wrote this article in Nature that we thought was really interesting um, <clears throat> because they were presenting this as a kind of novel opportunity to study wildlife from this kind of baseline level that was absent. I mean, it was really a kind of unprecedented opportunity. They were presenting it as, as an unprecedented opportunity to understand um, the world without humans. Um, but what we were interested in this, in with, with this really was was understanding it slightly more critically uh, from a social sciences perspective, asking, well, who who has the ability to pause? Uh, how is this anthropause unevenly experienced across various lines of socioeconomic um, yeah, um, dif differences that, that are really kind of uh, shaping, you know, who had the ability to pause, um, you know, people who worked in so-called essential jobs, uh, those working in logistics, in healthcare, um, in, I mean, in, in many, many different forms of jobs, uh, weren't able to pause uh, and actually their life intensified very much so. And we were interested in kind of understanding how the anthropos could be understood from a more kind of multiple uh, perspective. So I'll, I'll stop rambling now. I'll let you. Jonathan, just to pick up on, on that, any aspect of it, and I'm particularly interested, especially in light of your work, in previous examples where this term might have been applicable. Yeah, that's, that's probably the only thing I'd add to what Adam said, was that we tried to, um, with our colleague Jamie Lorimer, we tried to understand the anthropos as, as a multiple thing that's that um, has instances of it, it's occurred before in different different uh, for different reasons so my research at Chernobyl we might see things like disaster events or pollution events like Chernobyl Fukushima um, the Trinity test site things like this often they're three radioactive ones but we'll find others like um, oil and gas disasters and things like this where exclusion zones and no man's lands are created and um, we can see these as a kind of a slowing down of certain activities but a, a ramping up of other ones in certain areas that have ecological impacts we also kind of we came up with this typology uh, and on the typology there was there was other causal um, agents for the for anthropos events such as um, well pandemic events or one um, so looking at through history there's been influenzas and other pandemics that have, have also caused a, a global slow. Well, maybe not a global slowing down, but localized slowing downs of um, human activity that would have lead, led to ecological changes. But I'm not sure if people were kind of, you know, keeping keeping track of what was going on there. Uh, and I think I think kind of the the other thing that we tried to do was to distinguish between anthropos as like a, an event or like a kind of way of labeling um, these periods of time in which ecological changes might be noticed and also anthropos as a verb as a, as a practice of, of, of who and who was slowing down where and why and, and trying to kind of yeah as Adam said unpack how it was experienced unequally.
Well, just to stay with that, Jonathan, for a second. I mean, this, uh, there's so many angles on this. I mean, one of them is the what did you in in some of your writing on this? What what were you tracking in terms of humans noticing animals during the anthropos? So just coming back to what we were just talking about here with the with the birds. I mean, this became a global phenomena of observation, and so you were you were watching that a little bit. What kind of trends did you notice in that? And we've got Adam with his peregrine falcons. And we've got me with the birds in the yard, and then a lot of anecdotal stuff. Everybody I talk to seemed to have some story of seeing animals all of a sudden. Why that, and what were you paying attention to particularly with that? Yeah, so this is this is a really good question because it speaks to it speaks to some work that we've just finished as well. Um, so the, the the peregrine falcons was what what really drew us us both in. To be honest, we were, we were both kind of sucked into this one camera, the Sheffield one that Adam mentioned. Um, and that quickly spiraled into looking at as many of the peregrine falcon cams in the UK as possible. And we think we've managed to produce a kind of a good map of where they are and get some get some records on how people tuning into them and differed uh, during the pandemic compared to before. But I think what we what we wanted to do was to try and amalgamate all of these these stories and use the word anecdotal. And it seemed to be anecdotal. It seemed to be everyone had this kind of story about, you know, peering out the the back garden and seeing wildlife and, and, and kind of attuning to it in a way that they never had before or you know putting up a bird box for the first time or a bird bath or a bird feeder often birds um and, and that's kind of anticipating one of your later questions but we got really involved with the self-isolating bird club and, and ended up speaking to a lot of their members but i think what we wanted to do was to try and give some empirical weight to some of the speculation that had been going on in um academic writing and, and popular writing around um, you know how the anthropos had really changed people's relationships with nature in various ways and we wanted to explore the ways in which that actually happened so we did these um, quite big surveys and then ran a number of focus groups with uh, which focused around the self-isolating bird club which we can come to later um, to, to really ask people in detail what was going on and I think what we identified as some of the key changes were that um, the slowing down allowed people to kind of inhabit these new temporal rhythms. And often this meant getting outside at a time when getting outside was limited and really paying attention to what was around them. So a lot of people started using apps like iBird and things like this to to learn more about the the wildlife in the back gardens and, and see what you know was there and compare it to friends and other people um people took active actions to kind of bring wildlife to their back gardens or balconies or, or whatever was available um so plants uh plants on balconies growing things for the first time like lots of people did turn to this according to our survey um other things like hedgehog houses or hedgehog hotels, um, this kind of thing. People installed them in the gardens to attract wildlife. So we, we kind of saw this as a, a cultivation, an attempt at cultivating wildlife during this time. And then the, the last big, the, the big theme that we kind of identified was that um, people were using digital technologies in new ways. So um, bird bath sales went through the roof during the pandemic as people tried to get birds into their garden but so did things like trap cams uh, or trail cameras which are 
um, motion-activated cameras that you, you put in your back garden or um, local green space to you know see what's there when you're not there. And like lots of people, including scientists who, who often did field research abroad, started to um, use their own equipment or use this equipment for the first time to identify what was going on in their back gardens and stuff like this. Um, so I think those those are those are some of the main things that that we identified. Adam, just to bring you in, anything John Jonathan's talking about here? Yeah, I mean, this is the the work we've all been doing here. That's been kind of ethnographic work with people who are involved in the self isolating bird club. And what we were kind of trying to do with this was to challenge this idea that the kind of nature um, automatically will get better in the absence of humans, and really kind of critique this idea that this has been a good thing for wildlife and 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 not find optimism in this kind of politically neutral idea that we step back and you know nature will get better um which we think in like kind of allows for a very negative politics around the environmental crisis that's currently going on um and rather we were thinking about it as well if we are going to find some affirmative cause for optimism here it's actually looking at the very concrete actions that many many people have taken around the world to engage more meaningfully with nature and find more kind of opportunities for conviviality with other species during this time um and that's something that we've really been able to focus on with this with this project that's been interesting let me i just want to ask a couple of questions just since you collected this amazing data and just some of your thoughts about it um adam let me just stay with you first on this that um at a, at a moment of of maximum tension uh, fear people worried about their families, their jobs, and then also political tension, both in the UK, in the United States, in Brazil, India, many other places in the world with political leadership showed itself to be incompetent criminal. Um, some sort of, of engagement with nature, people reported that as a, as a stress relief. Uh, I mean, what, what do we find in that, in that, in, in that engagement? Is, is it a way to, to fill time to get off the screen. I, mean, I don't think we have to maybe choose one of these, but I'm really curious about about that. And you know, I mean, there's a lot of psychological literature out there that says people keep pets in general as as stress relief. So is this in some way an extension of that? Just with more time, people want to be closer to animals, or they want to be in 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 settings where they're going to run into multiple species and and not humans. I mean, that's maybe one way to interpret this, but. Um, Maybe you you encountered other sort of possible interpretations of this. Yeah, very much so. This was really a, a really common theme in all of our focus groups and our survey responses was that people were really turning to nature as um, an escape mechanism. Really, that 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 phrase came up a lot. That this is a this is a an escape from the the horrors of what's going on. People were losing loved ones. People were terrified about what they were going to eat next week it was just awful um and so much more awful for many many like i don't know but many people didn't have the opportunity to even think about nature um so it was a very privileged thing to even begin to think about nature as, a, as an escape mechanism but uh those who did it was always something that was i don't know it was this this thing came up so much around this was a means of seeing life going on that all around, all around was stories of horror and stories of death, and particularly um, 
Uh, I mean, I can't. I, we've not done work in the southern hemisphere, but in in the the northern hemisphere, the the, the outbreak of the pandemic came at, at springtime, and this is something which came up a lot that people felt really attuned to the the seasons for the first time ever in their lives. This came up so much that you know there was all around was death, but then you could see the leaves grow on the trees for the first time in months. You saw you know. Uh, birds in the garden for the first time and there was this real kind of okay well things will will go on um and yeah i mean the, there is a huge literature in environmental psychology um on on this uh on the the need to engage with nature to 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 cope really but it was something which was really prominent in in our research and also on the, on the other side of that as well was this um use of nature as a community building tool um, and this was something as well that wasn't it wasn't just people going and uh, you know spending time with birds. It was also people thinking around birds or thinking around conservation or wildlife and using that to create connections and the kind of mutual community with with humans as well. And a lot of people found that this was a, a real opportunity to meet their neighbors for the first time to talk around this sort of thing that that this was, and particularly on we saw this online quite a lot was this this community mm. building um opportunity that that really kind of united a lot of people and there was this kind of common uh element which was okay well we all we're all observing wildlife at the moment that that brought a lot of people together that probably wouldn't have been brought together before and that mm. was something that we saw uh on play out online quite a lot and and yet, Jonathan, I I sense there's a bit of an ambivalence in your analysis in this too, because um, you know it, the question of who gets to pause, right? So we're talking about a very specific sort of segment of the society in different countries that can that's not also having to go in the clinic and save lives every day or take out the trash or whatever they're having to do. So that's that's part of it. But then also, and I've wrestled with this personally, that treating nature as something that's just there to be engaged with when you're ready to on your own terms without being aware that the pause it, it is so anthrop anthrop it's it answer as you said it's it's focused on the human experience of the of the pause and not being aware about how putting more people in the trail uh more people in the park might actually be having a negative impact on wildlife so as humans draw off the strength or the the some their own, you know, need to bring their stress down by being in natural settings, they might actually be unpausing um, for other species in that in that space. I'm not saying it very well because I think it's a complicated idea, but maybe you can help me a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I really understand what you're saying, and and people are kind of anticipating the end of the anthropos and the kind of coming surge of human activity. Um, and this is something that again we're, we're really interested in is trying to trying to to trace how any of these benefits that people purportedly had during the pandemic, whether they might have lasting effects. So will this kind of new knowledge gained around wildlife through the use of apps, through community building, as Adam said, through um, spending more time outside and slowing down, will that, how long will that last? Will there be a legacy or will it, will it just go, you know, things open up again, boom. And things aren't, aren't, opening up overnight things are coming through slowly which suggests there might be an opportunity to preserve some some of these kind of things which as i said earlier about um in london 
I think I heard the other day there's a statistic around 60% of people are kind of resistant to going back to the office. And it's kind of, I think, I think there's been some changes now because it's been so long that there are, there are things that, that have the opportunity to be preserved. But um, there's others um, who are doing research on this, who are, who are trying to do a long, longitudinal study, which, which we're, we're attempting to as well with our focus group participants to really follow up with them and say, okay, so last year you told us this, how, how do these practices, how, are you still involved in these practices? Is this something that, have they changed? Have they become stronger or lesser? Mm. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's there's been opportunities for that legacy to continue, but I'm, I'm, we can't really we can't really say yet whether whether that's happening or happened. Jonathan, let me stay with you for a second on this too, because I wanted to ask you about Chernobyl and and the memory that you shared earlier. And I had the I've never been I've never been to Pripyat, but uh, been in Fukushima and and um, but then even also in Princeton, New Jersey, in the middle of this, and taking walks at night, and then literally it's empty. And my for, my mind just went. This is just me. But my mind went to this first. Like I'm in a I'm I'm in a city where a nuclear attack has occurred somehow close by. You know, it it for me it enacted like studies I had read mm-hmm. of what of what the United States nuclear war planners said it would be like, which is that everybody would be sheltered. Mm-hmm. And so the town hadn't been destroyed, but it was unsafe. Mm-hmm. And so it's the flip side of what we've been talking about with the anthropos and the rush to nature to find some sort of solidarity and comfort, but it's the fear of the absence of, of humans, another piece of that. I, I just wanted to get you to reflect on that a little bit, and even if you found it in the data, that there was another sort of subgroup of people that picked up on, on that or just, just what you thought. And, and here's, I want to just add one more piece of this, because you're describing being in Kiev, which if I understand it right, I mean, if things had gone even worse at Chernobyl, that would have been the reality of Kiev. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so the first part I would say, I don't, I don't really recall from the focus groups or, or surveys uh, a sense of people reflecting in a similar way to what you mentioned there. But I definitely think that there was a kind of eeriness for some people about, about this. There was an eeriness to kind of spaces with which they were very familiar. Due to this kind of absent, you know, the absence of life going on, which kind of really reconfigured what very familiar places were, and allowed people not only to see them as wild spaces, but to reimagine them in in, in different ways. And I think so. Like, during the pandemic, there was a the the biggest fire, wildfire that has ever been at, in Chernobyl, and um, the smoke from those fires blew and drifted over over Kiev and so the whole city was completely covered in this huge dusty smog and this was this was at a time during the pandemic where people weren't locked down so people were able to go outside but it brought people back inside again and it was really engulfed for a few days like incredibly thick so when you when you went to the shops and you would you'd you'd breathe you'd really feel it and you could smell it everywhere and there was this kind of pervading sense that you know the air is radioactive again and it kind of reignited these kind of oh that that's what it must have been like in in 1986. And if 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 it were not for the efforts that were put in at the time, uh, the the space would have been much larger, and it could have encompassed like much more of Ukraine and and, and other countries in Europe like Belarus. Um, but I think that the comparison that we've been interested in is these stories of resurgence that are kind of 
as Adam said, politically neutral, um, that just make it seem as if you know humans can do what they want to the environment and nature will, will just bounce back the same as it was before. This kind of ahistorical view of nature is this thing that is always kind of trying to get back to the uh, the Pleistocene or you know a, a place in which you've got me, uh, like megafauna running everywhere and, and this kind of thing. And so at Chernobyl, I'm really interested in contesting that idea of uh, nature bouncing back, not not in a, not in a way that discredits kind of the the really excellent field science that's going on there that is finding the presence of species like the first brown bear that's been there in over a hundred years in the region, but rather to kind of complicate it and say, okay, you have the presence of these animals, but if you look at finer scales and you look at you know microbial diversity and stuff like this, there there are impacts and it's and I'm trying to kind of like unpack these impacts without getting fully politicized myself, if that's possible. I know that's not mm-hmm. possible, but trying to trying to see both sides of a story of of resurgence where one side kind of sees it as a totally positive thing, the other side sees it as a very negative thing. But trying to see where they're speaking at cross purposes and understand kind of resurgence in more grounded detail rather than this just automatic process that nature will just do when we leave it alone. Resurgence is such a powerful concept for these times too, because if we think about it in, in terms of of uh, SARS-CoV two, that that country by country, you know, the infection rates tell us a story of of the virus surging, and so if we're tracking everything that's going on, both human and non-human, um, it can bring a lot of different things in, into the story here. And sort of decenter humans a little bit. I mean, I guess in a sense, I'm talking about telling this the pandemic from the perspective of the virus. We're thinking about sort of population growths and declines throughout this entire period, and it, I think it's really it's provocative on, on the sort of values that maybe we leave unexamined in all of this. Which I think what we've been talking about is that human life comes first, other life comes second, other life supports human life, and and everything else has to follow from that. I I just want to. Um, I want to read a quote from one of your articles that you published um, on the resurgence, and the title is um, "More Than Human Perspectives on COVID-19." It's resurgent natures, more than human um, perspectives on COVID-19, and this appeared in Dialogues in Human Geography. I'm going to read a couple sentences of it because um, uh, it's. <laughs> I'm going to point out two things. One is that a lot of times when you read articles that are co-authored, you can tell where one person's voice leaves off and another picks up. I can't tell. You guys are a great writing team because the tone is the same. And these are beautifully written articles. And let me just give you a sense of it for everybody's listening. You said, when we talk about nature healing or resurging, what is it we really mean? A story of return, but to what? Restoration unavoidably requires particular reference to ecologies of the past. Yet the abilities of particular ecologies to persist is a political and ethical matter, dependent on the ways we identify, respond to, and cultivate specific ecological milieus. Um, Adam, just to, if you want to extend on anything Jonathan was talking about, or give us your sense of this resurgence concept and how you see it playing out. Yeah, so we um, we developed this idea from the work of uh, anthropologist Anna Singh. Um, and she writes around uh, what she calls Anthropocene proliferation. And uh, in response to this, resurgence is a is a something which is a kind of more than human endeavor. So it's something which we have to work for. So we really get we're really troubling this idea that I mean, this this idea that, that it all came around from this kind of spectacular imagery 
um, that that seem to really proliferate around the world. Uh, and maybe it tied into this very particular cultural moment of needing something to feel good about. Um, that these stories got kind of overblown a little bit as well. So there'd be there was one in Barcelona that was really quite um, memorable, which was uh, a wild boar going down the the main street, the Aguinal. Uh, and you know, kind of th there was a really a video of it waiting at a red light that was quite amusing for, for a lot of people and uh anyone who knows barcelona or, or many big cities in the kind of southern europe like rome is a real problem uh, there, there's uh there's wild boar in the middle of the city all the time i mean literally a few weeks ago shakira was attacked by a wild boar in barcelona it's something that, that is very prominent um which was headline news here um but we were really kind of sorry that's a bit a bit of a tangent to, to your question uh what we were really kind of interested in was questioning this idea that nature had this kind of inherent ability to resurge, as Johnny said, and really say, well, no, if you look at these little stories everywhere, um, resurgence is something which is worked for, that is that uh, by by both humans and non-humans alike. Um, and as as all the stories we've collected with the, the self-isolate in Bird Club and the ethnographic work we've done over the last year has kind of shown Actually, you know, there isn't this inherent resurgence uh, in many cases. Actually, what's happening is people are really working to create these kind of opportunities for, for livability in the future. Um, you know, real concrete actions of conservation that, that, are, that are politically charged and ethically charged. Let me, you both have mentioned a couple of times, and I should give you a chance to talk about, um, Adam, let me stay with you on this, the self-isolating bird club uh tell us ab about this group yeah so this group was um was set up by uh a really famous naturalist uh called chris packham and um and megan mccormick two two really famous naturalists in, in the uk who are both really involved in broadcasting um who are hosts on a very popular a TV show that's on the BBC called Spring Watch. Now, now there's also Autumn Watch and Winter Watch. Uh, I don't think there's a Summer Watch, um, but they it's it's kind of a it's been an institution for a few decades in in the UK. The show which charts the emergence of spring uh, through wildlife footage around the UK, and it's um, yeah, it's, it's it's a nice wholesome show. Uh, and uh, so Chris Packham and Megan McCubbin were both um, broadcasters who then, I mean, broadcasting stopped. So they decided to kind of set up their own like uh, approach to um, to broadcasting. And that so Chris Packham, who's uh, quite a quite a kind of internet um, figure, quite a, quite a well known. Uh, quite a well-known personality in the UK conservation scene um, because he's he's always has these, I don't know, he's great. He's, he's got a really good view on nature as, and, and conservation. Um, and, you know, he, he really politicizes it in a way that I, I think the older broadcasters around nature in the UK don't, they won't call out people on the extinction crisis and think that, you know, BBC should be there to provide a Kind of politically neutral, hopeful story of of nature, but Chris Packham will really call out practices that are wrong and things like that. And he's great. Um, and so Chris Packham, there was there was a it was a I think it was on Facebook Live the first one, um, and it was just set up. I mean, people really thought going back to that time when lockdowns first came in, people really thought that this would last 
you know, two weeks. I mean, epidemiologists weren't saying that, but there was a kind of cultural idea that this would be over quite soon. Um, so it was set up very much just uh, quickly out of nowhere. And it was a, it was a, it was on Facebook Live the first broadcast, and it was you know filmed on a mobile phone that was a bit shaky. Um, there was no production value to it whatsoever. It was just off the cuff and really genuine and really wholesome. And it was um, Chris Packham being very honest around his anxieties around the pandemic uh, and his worries around uh, you know loss of life, and you know talking about really openly around people in his family who were high risk and having to self-isolate and things that were really kind of anxiety inducing and there's a there's a point in this broadcast where he says well how am i going to cope how how am i going to cope how are any of us going to cope with any of this stuff this is terrifying and he says i know what i'm going to have to do and then he stops and pauses and then you just hear these robins and he says i'll be listening to those robins um you know the little garden birds and 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 it was a, this really sweet thing, and, and he, he basically created this internet community. Um, and then later with Megan McCubbin in the broadcasts, um, where they they started doing these daily broadcasts every day that thousands of people were tuning into. I mean, these were people that probably were watching things like Spring Watch anyway before. But actually, in our focus groups and our and our surveys, a lot of people weren't really engaged with this stuff before. A lot of people were, you know, we we've got loads of stories of people saying, well. I've heard that that nature can be really helpful this time, and I was really anxious, so I thought I'd give it a go, and then I I got hooked on it and I stayed with it. Um, so it was these daily broadcasts, and it, they were brilliant. Particularly um, after a few months, their their kind of production level uh, increased a little bit, but it stayed just as genuine and just as unscripted and just uh, brilliant. And they'd have guests in from all over, all over, uh, talking about their relationship with nature and sharing their stories, and it was all just very genuine and relatable for a lot of people and um yeah and, and what happened as a result of these broadcasts was this uh internet community that was born out of the the, the audience of it um that there was really an idea that this is a shared thing not not just you know uh, an audience but rather a community um and i guess that was aided by digital technologies and web 2.0 and this idea that that you know it was something that was co co-produced by by the people engaging with it and the people producing the material um so the particularly the, the facebook group had at the height of the pandemic over fifty thousand members and it was really just a, a a constant stream of people's images from from their garden and and uh from from the garden from from their local wild spaces um things like that and it was really this kind of shared resource of you know we're, we're all in this together um let's let's uh let's share let's let's learn from each other and things like that and then um i don't know for me particularly i, I didn't have uh, a garden to go to and actually the evidence has showed all the research has showed that for the majority of people in the uk and in ireland access to green space decreased and a lot of people didn't have any access at all so for a lot of people who weren't able to have a garden i mean so many people don't have a garden i don't have a garden um and and don't have access to uh local green space particularly we spoke to a lot of people in our research participants who have who are in a kind of high risk category uh with chronic illnesses or with mobility issues and things like that where you know there's real uh you know barriers to accessing nature this was a way of kind of breaking down those barriers for 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 a lot of people um was a means of creating this shared resource this kind of hmm. commons of of nature 
That's fascinating, and it and it picks up on what we were talking about. I guess you know, for people as you said, who couldn't either couldn't go out because they were in a hard lockdown or they had no green space to to go to, then they it, they brought it inside. Has it has the program continued, or it ran its lifespan, and and it's it's done now? Yeah, actually, the program is has stopped, and the mm-hmm. the Facebook group is now closed as well. Um, Interesting. It's kind of, it's been archived, um, but there's been a kind of uh, kind of legacy group. I think it's called Friends of the Self Isolating Bird Club, um, and it's still continuing. And a lot of people have made real friendships, real relationships with people they've met online there. Um, particularly, uh, um, what we're, we're me and Johnny are currently supervising uh, uh, undergraduate dissertation uh, from. Uh, uh, someone called Naomi Parker, and she's doing really amazing work with people who've been working in the self isolate Bird Club. Her work's been has shown so much, in, so many kind of important insights from the legacy of this, from a social perspective. Um, particularly, she's been looking at the experience of women in the self isolate Bird Club, um, hmm. and she's found that uh, she's she's run a lot of focus groups with people um, with women who felt um, kind of exclu- well, we felt completely excluded from from wildlife spaces in the past in bird hides being looked at by men and uh in a kind of judgy way that you know this isn't a space for for women things like that and uh and what what naomi's found is that particularly the 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 women experience the women's experience of the self-isolating bird club has allowed these spaces to feel inclusive for the first time for many people and uh so the 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 legacy of this has been the kind of formation of lots of small groups um Mm. around the country that have made wildlife more accessible because access to wildlife is completely uh gendered and and and, and classed and uh there's a, there's a huge barrier mm. in terms of uh racial diversity in in the uk particularly around access to nature um and yeah that's something that, that naomi's been mm. focusing on lately it's really important work just want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Adam Searle and Jonathan Turnbull today. There's a couple other questions I'd like to get to if, if we if we can. Um, and Jonathan, I want to ask you sort of another, another layer on this, um, which has to do with what's come to be called uh, lab leak theory. And just, I mean, it's, it's just, in a broader sense, it's the story of zoonosis and, and trying to find patient zero for SARS-CoV-2 uh, in the United States, um, this has been weaponized by conspiracy theorists and people on the right who want to find a source for the um, for the disaster. It, they particularly want to find it in China. They want to find it in certain ideas about um, unhealthy relationships between humans and bats in China. So it's in many ways, it's through the looking glass. It's the inverse of a lot of the things we've been talking about up to now. Um, and it, it flips the script and talks about zoonosis as a danger, as a threat, and that humans um, can also accelerate that process through gain-of-function research, and they can pull from the natural world and create 
and create weapons. I wonder if how you think about that problem and, and that sort of discourse around this. And I ask this also because I just had earlier this, this week has been a great one for these kinds of discussions. I had the anthropologist Frederick Keck on, and we talked about his work about bird watchers in China and Taiwan and birds as sentinels, um, you know, as sort of like warning bells of, you know, some dangers coming. Um, I, let me let, just go to get your sense of it, Jonathan. What do you think about those ideas? Yeah, I think I think Frederick Keck's work's excellent on on sentinels, and it's very much interesting his work in relation to Chernobyl as well, um, where different animals become sentinels for environmental change. But on on the on the lab leak theory stuff, I think it, you know you, you were saying that people want want to pin it to a certain point to certain relationships that are deemed to be bad because they're different to the ones that are largely Western. And I think you know that it's riddled with xenophobia and it's riddled with an anti-Chinese sentiment. Um, you know, and honestly, I think I would have to point to the work of other anthropologists, like people like Eben Kirksey, who've done a lot of work on this. Or um, I think Tom Van Doren was writing about the the origins of the pandemic early on, in in, in terms of pangolins and bats and stuff like this, and the, the kind of multi-species relationships that are, you know, deemed to be you know allowable or not allowable. By different communities, and I think I think it's just quite far away from what we've been thinking about. That um, it, it, it's like we've been interested in the effects of this pause on human animal relationships and human wildlife relationships in terms of resurgence, and we have been reading and influenced by the work that kind of looks at how human viral relationships have been reconfigured, how people's relationships with you know like like public spaces has been reconfigured. Um, the work of people like Deborah Dixon there is incredibly interesting on stuff like this. Um, but I, I don't really, I don't think I've got, I don't think I've got too much to add, unfortunately, on, on the lab leak theory. I, I, I don't feel kind of qualified to say anything that's of, of interest, really. Uh, no, I appreciate you just even engaging with it at all, because in those, there's also this sort of... Um, <clears throat> contradiction, uh, sort of unexpected, you know, aspect of this, as we were discussing earlier, that, you know, if people, those who could, who now want to go out into nature. So on the one hand, we've got this sort of like fear of zoonosis, that it's, it's an unhealthy relationship. Mm -hmm. Humans are too close to animals, and this is what's caused um, this disaster in the first place. Of course, that's in China. It's, it's orientalized. It's, it's made dangerous because it's another part of the world. But of course, in many parts of the world, the exact thing that's happening is people are going out into the wild and looking for interactions with birds, right? So yeah. I, I, there's something there that I'm still sort of trying to, trying to get my mind around. And I think you put your finger on it, which is that it, it's, it's wrapped up in other ideas which have to do with um, exoticizing. Some people's relationships with animals are exotic and other people's are, are healthy. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that may be at the at the root of it. And I think also what they have in common is that these relationships have been made um global very quickly. And that's why mm. this anthropose in comparison to other ones, which you know, started because of pollution events or intentional creation of wildlife zones or economic disasters that all cause slowing, you know, temporary slowing downs of, of human activity. This one was global immediately. And kind of that global slowing down was because of a global spread of a virus. And so I think it, it just meant that it really emphasized the kind of ways in which modern society is connected now. Mm-hmm. So imagine if it did originate in a, in a market in China and suddenly 
everyone pretty much everywhere in the world is is this feeling impacts of those interactions and I, and I also i also think i don't i don't necessarily see the use in really determining exactly where the leak happened and why but rather to see it as a kind of to see to see the broader picture and the broader processes that were going on so mm -hmm. to see to see the the virus originating in china is to ignore the kind of economic relations that china is and china encompasses which is completely tied into a global economy and the global flow of capital and so to see it as you know coming from one place where you know hopefully one person bought one animal that you know mm. gave the virus to the world it just seems it seems unfair and it seems rooted in as we said this anti-chinese sentiment this kind of othering of practices such as animals that you can or can't eat whether you think animals are edible at all you know it comes into all of these questions where we need to see it as a a much broader picture where your choices on the other side of the planet clearly now affect other people's lives elsewhere. And so, yeah, mm. I think that's what we're seeing is this real interconnectivity. The, the other thing it makes me think of is that, you know, people who've gotten really fascinated by that. I mean, I think there are maybe real biosecurity <laughs> issues that people are going to look at that. And that's maybe important in the way this kind of research may be done. But, um, you know, try to explain to someone who needs to be intubated and they can't get a machine in the United States because of disinvestment in the health system, that the real question they should be worried about is zoonosis in China. I mean, yeah, I think exactly. it's, you know, again, it's a focus on this one thing and to the exclusion of the structural discussions, which are very much in front of us with all of this. I, I want to just return. We're almost out of time. I just want to return back to um, your article after the Anthropos lockdown lessons for more than human geographies. And this appeared in the Geographical Journal. And um, Adam, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this and just give you both a chance to comment on this. It's kind of bringing us full circle in a sense, but again, so beautifully written. You said, like pausing a film, the experience of the realities we inhabit are put on hold. This is the anthropos. To inhabit a pause involves a sense of being in the middle of things at a turning point in a moment or a series of moments of uncertainty. As such, you write, Pauses offer the chance for reflection. Equally, a pause is a disruptive, piercing event, engendering distinctions of before and after. A pause is thus a moment of potentiality suspended between past and future. Um, Adam, I mean, in a sense, it's what we've been talking about here, but I like the way that you leave that article. It also has a very 2020 feel to it. And, and I wonder how you feel about those observations now in, in, in late 2021. Um, well, as we as we've seen that there's been not really a before and after distinction here. It's been something which has been a lot more of a gray zone. Um, there's been a kind of, you know, there's many little interstices of many different periods of small, uh, you know, activities returning slightly and then and then stopping again. And I think this is something we're going to have to get used to. I think uh, that's maybe something that. <clears throat> it, that the pause itself isn't going to be this thing that that defines this period rather it's going to be a, a series of pauses again felt very unequally by by different groups uh, around the world as the virus reaches levels of prominence in different areas different geographies um so i think maybe that would be my main reflection there that we maybe need to rethink that as a as a simple you know period in which 
you know change happened i mean that's something we were trying to we were also trying to think think through the pause as this productive thing maybe rethinking it through the work of that we were really kind of moved by this this comment of uh roy said that you know we should think of the pandemic as a portal rather than a pause that's a, that's mm. a phrase that's gained a lot of traction that rather this mm. is a, an opportunity to rethink some of the injustices and the structural issues that are causing the unequal experience of this time um sorry I'm, yeah I'll, I'll maybe stop there that's my, yeah my the, uh, thank you for that and just on the on the way out I want to give a chance um Jonathan another project you both are working on uh, the digital ecologies research group tell us what this is yeah, so um, this, again, kind of we saw the intensification of digital technologies in both wildlife observation and in general kind of domestic life during the pandemic. And um, we'd been interested in these things before because I'd, I'd done some work with people GPS tracking wolves in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. And I was really interested in how these technologies mediate various human-animal interactions and kind of you know, have often been seen as a as a as a disconnection, but I, I was trying to read them as a, a new novel form of connection. And um, yeah, during the pandemic, and we were doing this research and tuning into these peregrine nest cams and other nest cams, and we did we visited all of these animal sanctuaries digitally. We did a virtual tour of the Chernobyl exclusion zone to see the dogs that live there. Um, all of these things that we were doing virtually. Uh, um, llamas going to llama farms and things like this uh yeah, yeah all of these human animal react, uh, relations were digitized during the pandemic and it was just fascinating and so it give it give birth to this kind of collective project which is with adam henry anderson elliott oscar hartman davies pauline chasway parali and jenny dodsworth who are all early career researchers and we put together a, a conference and it, it attracted quite a lot of attention and had some fantastic papers from all around the world um, various instances in which non-humans are being digitized for different purposes. And so we ran this conference and then we're currently putting an edited collection together on the back of that conference with some of the speakers. We're working on writing a kind of um, review-y kind of paper that some, like summarizes and points to future directions and embarking on, on various projects to do with digitization in the non-human world. So it's, people are welcome to get in touch. We have a blog. Um, we're always looking for for new people to post on the blog. So, yeah, thanks for okay, thanks for asking that. I've put the link up uh, www.digecologies d i g i digecologies d i g i c o l o g i e s dot com www.digecologies dot com and check out that work. Um, so. Um, just want to remind everybody, you've been listening to COVID calls, and, and this has been one of those weeks on COVID calls where I just learned so much. And, and to finish this way, it's just an honor to speak to you both, uh, Adam Searle and Jonathan Turnbull. And I, um, I cannot wait for us to get a chance to have you come to South Korea and come to the DMZ and mm -hmm. see the kind of research that's going on there. Um, and, and some of my colleagues here at, at KAIST, Bumsun Park, and Myung-ae Choi, who are... Mm -hmm. Um, working on crane populations there, and Joel Champelet is working on that as well. So we got a lively community of people who are engaged in this kind of work here, and I want to connect those dots after we get off the call. So um, thank you for that. So um, again, just reminding everyone that oh, Adam's telling me they're actually in the digital ecology. Of course they are. They're they're more aware of the of the world than I am. I'm glad they're involved in that project, and we still need to get you here to make a trip to the DMZ if you haven't haven't been and see that field site. So um, 
Just reminding everyone that uh, you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And um, today was a special COVID calls at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. And thanking my guests again, Adam Searle and Jonathan Turnbull. Thanks for the work you're doing. Keep it up. Looking forward to this book. And uh, stay healthy. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. See you all next time on COVID Calls.